The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to the Ellis Martin Report. During this broadcast, you will learn of potential investment opportunities involving publicly traded companies. These companies have paid us for exposure on this program. We ask that before you consider any possible investment choice, do your own research. You can begin the research process by visiting our website, ellismartinreport.com. Remember, if you do invest in any publicly traded concern, you do so at your own risk. Here's the host of the Ellis Martin Report, Ellis Martin. Join me for a conversation with Michael Raps, Vice President of Corporate Communications for Silvercrest Metals, trading on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol SIL. Silvercrest is a Canadian precious metals exploration company headquartered in Vancouver, British Columbia. It's focused on new discoveries, value-added acquisitions, targeting production in Mexico's historic precious metals districts, including three properties in prolific Sonora State, Mexico. The company was formed following the acquisition of Silvercrest Mines by First Majestic Silver Corporation. Silvercrest Metals Las Chispas project has proven to be potentially prolific as of late with discoveries of possible Bonanza-grade silver equivalent resource in the Las Chispas and William Tell veins. Mike, welcome to the program. Thank you, Alice, for having me on today. One of the questions that some of our listeners may have had a few months ago when you were releasing numbers on the Bonanza grades of the Las Chispas project is, are they continuous? Are the grades high all the way through? And according to a recent Silvercrest news release, they are. That's actually true. We have seen further continuity of the high grades at the Las Chispas project. Although the width might be narrow, you know, it's over one to five meters, they are potentially mineable thicknesses. So we are very encouraged to what we have seen over the last few weeks. And we have completed phase one drilling and we are looking at starting phase two this fall. We've seen all the way through this year a substantial increase in share price compared to where we started, in my mind, last November and December near the Silver Summit. You've been able to deliver astounding results over the course of time with regard to resource potentially in the ground. We all know as well that this particular management team has had proven success in the past in this area, and there's little reason to believe that they cannot deliver again. It's not always smart to speculate on these things, but all of this is worth taking note of. If I was to look it up, when we hit our $4 high, I think we have increased over 2,000% year to date. And basically, you mentioned two of the reasons why it's definitely, you know, August 2nd when we released our first batch of news of the uh, drill assays. And I haven't seen the market react so positively to good drill results as we have seen here on August 2nd. The grades were impressive. Bonanza grades, you called it just earlier. Secondly, the reputation of the management in the marketplace is, I believe, one of the reasons why we have seen such an increase in share price because the old Silvercrest Mines management right, has always delivered on their promises. And Eric Fear, who is currently the president and CEO of the company, has said that his ultimate vision is to do it again and turn this into a producer. And then, you know, listeners shouldn't forget that we also highly leveraged to the silver price and silver and gold 
have done unexpectedly well over the last six to eight months. So all of this combined basically led to that hike in the share price. Of course, the price of silver and gold can fluctuate, as is the case in recent days, Mike. But you factor that into potential production costs when it becomes time to do so. Much of this silver is easy to access. Historically speaking, there are 11.5 kilometers of underground workings on the Las Chispas project, and we have reopened and gained access to about 6 kilometers to date. So we have done a lot of work going into the underground, cleaning it out, very systematically taking channel samples from the footfall and the hanging wall, and drilling also basically will define those areas that are those high-grade pockets where we can go and extract a 100,000-ton bulk sample. Because if you remember, when we talked about the underground drilling permit, we have basically applied for that. We should be receiving that any day now. And with that underground drilling permit, it will also include the permit to conduct a 100,000-ton bulk sample. And so all this past drilling that we have done, all this future drilling that we will do this fall, lasting into the new year, all of that will be used to define those high-grade areas. Since you have this infrastructure at Las Chispas, it's not extremely expensive to develop compared to other projects in the world. Yeah, I don't think so. I think having all this infrastructure, as you said, in place, I mean, first of all, how to access the property, that's always very important to the management of this company, is that you want to be close to good infrastructure such as the highway. From our door to the underground portal, it takes about 45 minutes drive, and it's on highway, and then once you turn off the highway, it's about six kilometers to the portal, so that's important. And then, yeah, like you said, we have all these underground workings, and you get all these drifts where you can just get into the underground from an infrastructure perspective, really favorable. How are you capitalized right now? We still have about three and a half million dollars cash in the bank, so we are definitely in a really good, strong position to start the phase two drilling with that cash, but the budget for that will be a little higher than the one that we did just recently, as we are looking to drill more meters than what we drilled in phase one, and potentially have more than just one drill rig on site, because the phase two drilling will include an underground drill rig and a surface drill rig. We have enough cash in bank to start off phase two drilling. Are you going into production eventually or is there a buyout strategy, a positive one, similar to what we saw with the previous incarnation, Silvercrest Mines? You never know really, Alice. You know, that's a question that only the future holds, but right now we don't have a for sale sign hanging by the door. Our strategy going forward is do it very systematically and based on the successes that we receive. Once we have completed phase two drilling, for example, we're going to compile all of the drill data and we'll initiate our maiden resource estimate. We expect that to be done in the first half of next year. Then you'll be looking at kicking off the bulk sample that I was talking earlier and you'll be starting to extract all this mineralized material from the underground and you just move on and move forward and you keep on developing this project. I think if you want to look at this from a timeline perspective, you probably be looking at easily three to five years before you would put that into production. There's a number of steps that you would have to do before you get into a production scenario. Recently, you put out news concerning the William Tell vein, an unmined vein, which means exactly that. It's never been mined. You did some samples there. What did you find? 
find. That is an extremely encouraging news release for, for us because what happened here in the past is these historic miners, it appears that they have mined on strike until they hit a fault. And that cross-cutting fault really displaced the, the vein. And so these miners just didn't continue any further and investigated any further. So they went back to mine the Las Chispas vein. And as you know, Las Chispas has never been drill tested before. And so when we start putting some drill holes into the area, it intercepted the unmined portion of the William Tell vein. And that is very encouraging to us. That basically means there's a lot of unmined material sitting there. And what phase two drilling will also do is we will go ahead and drill test those southern extension of the William Tell vein to see how long the strike lengths will be. That was a very encouraging find for us. According to what I've seen in this news release, you found potential grades of greater than 400 grams per ton. We've seen bigger Bonanza grades, but still, this is incredibly significant. This is a major, major project potentially for Silvercrest in Sonora State, Mexico. It is. It definitely is. You know, we have looked at this quite intensively and we said to ourselves that everything over 150 grams per ton silver equivalent would be economic in our view. Uh, obviously, a 43-101 would all you know confirm that, but if we see those kind of grades, the 300, 400 grams per ton silver equivalent, yes, they have dropped off to the Bonanza-type grades that we have put out August 2nd, but it still shows us some very economic grades that are coming forth from all these veins, and we are very encouraged. And keep in mind that when we drilled Las Chispas and the William Tell vein, we only drilled that first because we had a, access to the underground there, and B, we received the surface drilling permit easier and, and quicker than the underground. Because what the underground drilling permit will give us is that we now can go ahead and drill the Bobby Canora target, which holds the Bobby Canora vein. And that was the biggest producer, historically speaking, when they mined there between 1880 and 1930. Mike, it's been a pleasure speaking with you today. Thanks so much for joining me on the program. I look forward to more news in the very near future. Thanks again, Alice. It was great talking. To you. I've been speaking with Michael Rapsch, Vice President of Corporate Communications for Silvercrest Metals, trading on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol SIL. Listen to the segment again on the homepage of our website, ellismartreport.com, and download the entire Ellismart Report on iTunes or TuneIn Radio. Resource stocks, gold, silver, rare earth elements. Learn about them by going to our website. EllisMartinReport.com. Join me now for a conversation with Giannis Sitos, president of Gold Source Mines, trading on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol GXS.V. Gold Source is a Canadian junior mining company producing gold in mining friendly English speaking Guyana, bordering the Caribbean and South America. Giannis, welcome back to the program. Thank you very much, Alice, and uh, thanks for the opportunity to talk again to your audience. You were with BHP Billiton for 19 years. You've lived and worked all over the world, Latin America, Europe, and of course, Canada. Why is the Eagle Mountain Project in Guyana so special, and what's the outlook for gold production in Guyana? project is special for us because we have gone through a lot of stages as a junior company and we recognized the value uh, long ago back in 2010 but in the last two years we have worked very diligently the team in Canada management board of the directors but also and most importantly the team in Guyana to bring this project to production I want to remind people in at the end of June we concluded successfully the commission period all that on time and just at the budget or let's say on budget which is rare in this industry and 
now we are in the phase of commercial production. Now, why Guyana? Guyana is it's a great place to do mining business from a point of view. It is a British law environment. It's the only English-speaking country in South America. And the, more than 25% of the GDP of the country depends on the extractive industry. So gold, bauxite, oil, gas, and forestry are the key things there. Therefore, the government you know, is tuned to support foreign investment in this kind of sectors. We have tremendous buy-in from the local community, but also centralized government and authorities. On top of all of that, the local Guyanese people are well-educated and well-trained when it comes to mining equipment, you know, all the kind of sort of trades that you might need to build up a mine and operate it. Speaking of building up a mine, there are, of course, companies with significant gold assets, and they are two to three years away from production, some needing two to $400 million worth of capital to build out their mines. You had none of those costs, and you are in production. Yes, because uh, that's the philosophy of this team. You know, Eric Fia, our chief operating officer, has done it with several other projects, most recently with uh, Silvercrest Mines. We want to be proud of ourselves that we are not really the pioneers, but what we call phase development approach. Now, Elisa would like to say that about 100 years ago, or even before that, the miners were doing exactly what we tried to do. They were never going out to find, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars or big amounts to built up big mines. Our philosophy is that you develop a mine with the small capex and the precious metals, I would say, help for that. And then, obviously, as you de-risk the project with the various phases and milestones you try to achieve, you present more credibility, more support and confidence to your own shareholders, your own investors, the general market, but even your own operating team to build the next phases and deliver the big mine in a space of two to four years. So I do find that a lot of other companies are trying to come to this kind of space. But it's not unique to us, as I said. It has happened by mining miners tens and hundreds of years ago. And I don't know why in difficult times from the banking sector where, you know, cash is king and, and debt uh, and, and balloons of debt are out there and difficult to achieve, people still go to that kind of phase. But for us, speaking for ourselves, we have done it and we are now in production. Of course, it means that in the next 18 months, we will see a set of uh, milestones and further capital to be invested but at least we are in the face of having cash flow and therefore knowing the, the risk of your project and uh, the challenges and mitigate upon them. What kind of challenges do you think there might be or do you not want to speculate on that? No I cannot speculate on that because uh, I mean the biggest challenge uh, is obviously for any miner is the price of the commodity, but uh, we are happy to be the gold space at the right time. You know, many people doubt us when the markets were very bad and people were predicting gold at the thousand dollars that we were building a mine. Now we have come out the right time. I say right time because although it's a parameter I cannot control, I do believe that the gold market is robust and the global events, macro drivers and so on are supporting at least the price to stay there where it is, if not to be improved. So everything, as I say, has to do with your own operating costs. And as long as we keep this cost low, and just to remind to your audience, we are talking for the mine life here, uh, cash cost close to $500 per ounce, and all in with sustaining capital and uh, overheads in Canada, about something between $600 and $700 per ounce. That, in this current gold price, is giving us a significant profit margin. And certainly since we began covering you, the price of gold has increased about $200 plus dollars an ounce and all you've had to do is continue to do the work you've been doing in the ground correct correct and uh, i always doubt 
that will go to you know nine hundred dollars. So because you know other miners, especially bigger miners, will face existence problems and so on, and a lot of mines would have been closed down. But I mean, sometimes I mean, obviously, gold is uh, moving with more sentiment and macroeconomic uh, information. But as I say, it's the only thing I cannot control. But I control all the other numbers of the company, and I'm happy for them. It's interesting in that you have a share price of around forty-five cents, and compared to other companies in the space who again are not in production and won't be for a few years, there's a large disparity in some cases in share price and market cap. There should be even more attention on the stock at this time, all things considered. We have uh, tripled our capitalization in the recent seven months, and we're very happy for that from the point of view that the investors and the general market has appreciated the fact that we promised some milestones and we achieved them on time and on budget. Having said that, we have to keep uh, working hard and move to the next phase. So we've got a couple of milestones as targets for this year, and these are the introduction of a night shift, because at the moment we operate just with one shift of 10 hours. So the introduction of a night shift, which uh, will move the capacity from 1,000 tons a day processing to about 1,800 tons a day, and all this is public, we have put news out there, and uh, that we feel will happen still in the Q3 of this year, and late in the Q4 of this year, the deployment of an intensive lead reactor, which will move the, the recoveries from close to 50% out of gold concentrate at the moment to almost 95%. So on one side, we increase the amount of oil we want to pass from the processing plant, and on the other side, we effectively double the amount of gold you get out. So therefore, you quadruple. As we deliver these milestones and even bigger developments in 2017, I see an appreciation also on our capitalization. You don't expect to have to go to the market for any future capitalization, therefore not necessarily diluting the stock. This has been the way for the most part that this management team has handled this company and other companies it's been responsible for in the present and in the past. And that's correct. But in my position as the president of the company, you can never say no because, uh, you know, that's not legal in any case. So we are happy with what we do at the moment. We do have a number of, a significant number of warrants from our construction financing that is in the money. And uh, we keep receiving voluntarily checks out of own shareholders. So that is helping us a lot. And obviously the market has paid attention to us, as I said, and is bombarding us with potential offers on loans and other stuff, and even equity, as you said, but you know, obviously this management is very prudent. It's not only me, it's all the whole board of directors and the vision they have here. As we are instructed to operate under some strategy that we are part of and we define it, so we'll see how it goes the coming months, but I agree with you. In addition to the up to 1,800 tons a day that you'll be commercially producing, is there anything else upcoming that you can share with us? The only thing, other point I want to enhance here, in this kind of size of companies, uh, everything is around the team, and I'm very proud to say that we have built a tremendous team both in Canada on the management and the board of directors we have more than 250 years of experience collectively in the mining industry from big mines to kind of small mines discovering mines and deposits and selling companies and so on so this is a very expert kind of um, management here now going to Guyana this is incredible so we have done all that without any security issues without any safety concerns or accidents so although we are small company relatively to others at this stage, we still operate the company with high big company standards. I'm coming from BHP, as you said. Eric Fear, our CEO, is coming, uh, you know, started his career with Newmont, the biggest gold miner out there. So we definitely come with a mentality of, you know, protecting our people and safe environment, zero tolerance to nasty things and so on. So we are working and, and we're delivering things on time, on budget and on quality, I would say. 
and the jurisdiction in Guyana is about as good as it is in Canada, isn't it? Yeah, to some extent, even better. I mean, I'm, I'm living in Canada for 17 years now, so half Canadian, half European, but the point is that in Guyana, there is tremendous uh, dependence, as I said, on the extractive industry, so you have uh, direct uh, input from government authorities and, and local people in what you try to do. You know, obviously, you know, I don't like to separate countries in first world countries and third world countries, but as a developing country has different type of challenges. The beauty of Eagle Mountain, and that's why we bought it six years ago, was its proximity to infrastructure. So we didn't have to spend much money on capital projects beyond the mine, and that's a beauty. So we really feel very confident there, and I, I would say it's a great regime to operate. Well, Giannis, as always, it's been a very informative interview. Congratulations on all your good work. Thanks so much for joining me today on the program. Thank you, thank you, thanks for the opportunity, Addison. Have a nice summer. I've been speaking with Giannis Sitos of Gold Source Mines, trading on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol GXS.V. Listen to the segment again on the homepage of our website, ellismartinreport.com, or listen to the entire Ellis Martin Report on iTunes, TuneIn Radio, and of course on voiceamerica.com. Join me now for a conversation with the Vice President of Corporate Development for Nobilis Health Corporation, Colin Azonia. Nobilis trades in the U.S. as HLTH and on the TSX as NHC. Nobilis is a recognized healthcare leader and marketing innovator that develops, owns, and partners with ambulatory surgery centers, hospitals, and physician practices to provide high-yield procedures in the rapidly expanding, minimally invasive elective surgery market. Mr. Azonian is responsible for the oversight of all mergers, acquisitions, joint ventures, and investor relations. Colin, welcome back to the program. Thanks, Alice. Nice to be back. Now, you recently acquired Arizona Vein and Vascular, including their affiliated clinics. While it's your practice to grow revenue through acquisitions, Colin, that's what you do, how does this particular business add further diversification to Nobilis's portfolio? How does it create a platform upon which Nobilis can build a national presence in the treatment of vascular diseases? First of all, thank you. We're really excited about the acquisition. We spent a great amount of time on this acquisition. So it's been in the works for quite a while. So we're very excited to finally have it over the finish line here and and really focus on integration and driving growth, as you mentioned. So the acquisition adds a new brand to our portfolio of specialties focused on the vascular business, if you will. And that new brand now gives us the opportunity to work with new physicians, both in the new facilities that we acquired, but also take this brand and integrate it with our marketing capabilities that we have today and expand it, not just to the Arizona market, but also to the Texas markets where we currently own and operate facilities as well, uh, in addition to bringing it to our partner facilities throughout the country. So it is a tremendous growth opportunity for us going forward. In one of the news releases I recently looked over, it stated, looking ahead, and I'm quoting, looking ahead, we continue to seek potential acquisition opportunities in which we can leverage our marketing capabilities. The big biggest asset of Noblest, and we've talked about this before, seems to be these marketing capabilities. Are they the real secret sauce of the company? Can you literally apply them to anything that fits your boutique service-oriented business? Absolutely. With our vascular acquisition, that's really where we spent a good deal of time understanding the capabilities that we have to integrate the new vascular specialty into our entire marketing platform and the programs that we deploy. So the level of sophistication that we have in our ability to market to patients seeking care within these different specialties really 
gives us the opportunity to educate these patients, help them navigate the process, and really provide that transparency that they don't really get anywhere else that allows us and them to have a tremendous patient experience. And so that secret sauce, as you mentioned, is something that you really just can't flip on a switch. You really need to understand how both the patient, physician, and surgical process works. And it's our ability to bring all three of those pieces together and deploy them to our facilities. And with the acquisition of this vascular business, it's just another specialty that we have within our portfolio to continue to grow our business through that secret sauce. And this corporation basically was founded with an acquisition-oriented philosophy, was it not? That's what I recall the initial genesis of Northstar and then uh, Nobilis. That was an acquisition. Correct, correct. And we'll continue to do so with the fundamental business thesis that if we cannot drive incremental revenue or, or show growth in any situation through our marketing arm or marketing division, which really is you know the fundamental basis for how we're able to be so successful, then we're not going to do that acquisition. So we look at every acquisition as an opportunity, not just to acquire market share, but drive incremental revenue and really make these businesses that we acquire much more successful and, and perform better than they are today. As far as I know, and I've been following the company for a couple of years, these acquisitions, when they happen, they just happen and the process is pretty stealth as far as the public is concerned. How many potential acquisitions do you consider at any one time and what are the exact criteria for acquiring a company? Sure. So we usually look at about three to five acquisitions at the same time that are serious potential acquisitions on our plate. So as we comb through those, once again, the, the real focus is once we understand that there are sound business opportunities for us, we really then dive into the due diligence around you know the effective marketing capabilities that we can integrate and drive going forward. And that's where we spend a great deal of time and probably gives us, and, and I know it does, gives us more insight into what's going to happen immediately after the acquisition gets done because we then have that intel and that capability to understand how much revenue, how much EBITDA, what the integration is going to look like so we can effectively turn these things around very, very quickly. Now, as it relates to you know the size of the acquisitions, you know our focus is really looking at portfolio companies now, which means that they have multiple facilities across different markets with different physician partners and different specialty mixes. Now that we've really built you know, the foundation of the business, we now really are looking to scale on a much more national level. Speaking of EBITDA, I was looking over your financials and I've just got a couple of questions here related to that. How much in dollars have you earmarked for continued expansion and at what point do you stop allowing perhaps for significant capitalization to occur? Well, given our current position today, we really want to take a conservative pr- approach in terms of how much debt we continue to put on the company related to doing these acquisitions. Now, we're in a fantastic position and it makes my life and job quite exciting is because we do have the opportunity to lever up here quite a bit, but we're not going to get anywhere near our peers four or five, six times levered. We want to be in that two to three turns kind of range as we look to continue to grow. So that amount of leverage does give us the opportunity to be a formidable force in terms of our buying power 
in the M&A market, given what's available out there today. So it does not limit us at all. And we really continue just to see tremendous acquisition growth opportunity going forward. I think it's really important. I'm sure you would agree that when you're growing a company through acquisition and increasing revenues, it's really, really important that all of your facilities have a high collection rate on receivables. And you have, as of the last report that I read, a 91% rate on receivables. And that's pretty much unheard of. What do you attribute this to? I'm glad you asked that question because that definitely has been a hot topic amongst the investment community. Really, it's a hard component to manage through an acquisition strategy, specifically given last year and the acquisition of three surgical hospitals. These are much larger, more complex than your typical smaller surgery center. So as it relates to the billing and collections, there's a different level of complexity that goes into this. And you also have a aggressive growth strategy that we want to deploy where immediately following an acquisition, we want to make that thing as profitable as can be as quickly as we can. And even if that means that our DSOs are going to balloon a little bit, right? And so you're going to see that AR not be as attractive as I think we all want it to be, but we're still extremely confident that our our AR collectability is going to be as strong as ever. And and I think it's important to point out that we don't carve out a bad debt portion for AR that's going to be uncollected. We've got a historical record uh, year after year of collecting 100% of our AR. So it really is a matter of a business decision for us to say, you know, we rather get these surgical hospitals online as quickly as possible, get them profitable, knowing that there may be some manual billing that needs to occur before the EMRs get put into place so we can do the electronic billing. And, you know, this Q2 showed that these DSOs are starting to come back down. The AR collection is as strong as ever. And that trend will continue going forward throughout the rest of the year. It's important to note, though, that you have a subsidiary, wholly owned subsidiary of Noblest that specifically set up for receivables and everything's bundled. That's correct. And if you're referring to our Concertus division, that subsidiary of ours just had tremendous success so far in terms of creating these bundled packages or or payment programs, if you will, and working with the TPAs, the brokers out there, the insurance providers in terms of being really a leader in the space for providing these bundled payments, not just to the payers, but also to the amount of lives that are covered under these payers and to these patients directly, which definitely means better quality of care, more transparency and, you know, essentially a warranty, if you will, against the surgeries performed. So we really are taking the ownership as the provider to really back our quality of service that we provide through these surgeries. And we have the data through our traction of patients and their records over the years to be able to provide a a high level of testament to that. So we're very excited around the progress of that. This must be very exciting for the acquisition targets because the principals in many cases can stay involved and grow their net worth. Yeah, no, absolutely. And being a leader in not just the bundled payment space, but also having this unique marketing capability, we find management as in Dr. Phil Wall over at Arizona Vein and Vascular. That was really the biggest selling point to him to join forces with Nobilis is really the opportunity that lies ahead given the unique capabilities of not just the marketing program, 
program, but also our ability to leverage these bundled payment programs. Looking into the fall of 2016 and ahead into next year, what can we expect to see from Nobilis? What else is coming down the pike? First and foremost is execution. That's really the forethought for all of us here is really just to continue to execute. You know, we had a fantastic Q2, not just from the numbers perspective, but also in terms of the processes and, you know, our internal controls and our filing and everything else that comes along with that. So we're more and more growing up as a public company, if you will, and and really catching up to the amount of pace that we've grown. So we will continue to execute and you will see fantastic work from management here over the next several quarters and closing out 2016. That's number one. Number two is the organic growth. The vascular acquisition along with our current facility infrastructure prior really gives us the opportunity to continue to execute as it relates to our organic growth story. So we'll definitely see that. And third are the acquisitions. Without saying too much, the pipeline is strong and we still have a very strong appetite to continue to execute some very unique acquisitions that will give us a much larger footprint and a a much broader opportunity to continue to leverage our marketing capabilities to grow the business. Speaking of that footprint, are you working toward a full-service, nationally-known brand and outpatient healthcare. Does anything like this currently exist or are you ultimately going to be setting the example? Yeah, no, I think we're definitely setting the example, especially as it relates to consumer-driven healthcare. And what's unique is you see a lot of these large health systems create a single brand, similar to other large corporations, such as Walmart, for example, right, where you can go to their store and it's always the same store. We're very focused on creating a national brand of specialties. We're actually branding the specialty service that we're providing, not necessarily the no name, but the type of surgery that we're providing so that patients know that when they get that specific service, they're working with the top doctors in the top facilities and they're getting the absolute best possible level of a care in an outpatient setting that they can only get under that brand, not necessarily under the the corporate brand that's always going to provide a mid-level type of experience. So we definitely believe we're the leaders in this space. And if we can grow our footprint through some significant acquisitions, we will be a tremendous leader in this space, given where our peers are today. Well, Colin, this has been a a very fascinating discussion. I appreciate your time today. Thanks so much for bringing us up to date on Nobilis. I look forward to speaking with you again with more good news in the near future. Great. Thanks for having me. I've been speaking with Colin Azonian, Vice President of Corporate Development for Nobilis Health Corporation. Nobilis trades in the U.S. under the symbol H. LTH and on the TSX as NHC. Listen to this segment again on our website, ellismartinreport.com, and listen to the entire Ellis Martin Report on iTunes and the TuneIn Radio app. Brent Bergeron is the Executive Vice President of Corporate Affairs and Sustainability at Goldcorp. I met with Brent at the Yukon Mining Conference in Dawson City, Canada, and we discussed the company's acquisition of Kamenak Gold in addition to Goldcorp's strategy for acquisition. A friend told me that Goldcorp had basically made an offer on Kamenak. How did that happen? I think for us, we're taking a look around the world for different types of assets. The attractiveness of an asset, especially with respect to its resources, is extremely important to us. But we're placing a lot of emphasis also in terms of where we actually make the investments these days. And political risk is, is something that is becoming more important around the world. And Canada is still a great place to be investing in mining. There's still a lot of very interesting projects here. And you have governments who, different territories or provinces that are trying to attract companies to come and take a look at their projects, take a look at the value that can be created there, 
and also take a look at how they're trying to do mining in a very responsible way, including communities, including First Nations, and setting up the rules in a way that people will have clarity in terms of how we get our projects done and how we move forward. And that's a very important part of what we look for when we look at projects and jurisdiction. What was it about this particular project that attracted the company? Of course, the technical aspects of the projects. I mean, the resources are there. Kamenak team has done an excellent job in terms of de-risking the project the way it's defined today in their feasibility study. But they've also done an excellent job in terms of working with the different partners in the area, whether it's the First Nations, whether it's the Yukon government, and making sure that People really have the information about how they're trying to design the project, involve them in the process, answering a lot of the questions in terms of the technologies that are going to be used for this project. When you take a look at the way that the team from Kamenak has actually developed this one, it makes it a lot easier for us to eliminate that as a very big risk for the project moving forward or something that we would have to take on. Are you looking at other potential opportunities in the region? Absolutely. I mean, uh, the whole philosophy behind where we pick a project or we pick a region is to make it in terms of building a mining camp for our company. So we've already done a secondary transaction where we've uh, made a uh, an initial investment in independent gold. That was done, I believe, about two weeks ago. And we're actually moving forward in terms of looking at different types of properties in the area that can allow us to grow what we have with Kamenak. Well, clearly, this is a very positive note for the local community with regard to jobs, increasing the infrastructure, and ultimately helping the uh, government coffers with regard to local taxes. Now, is Ottawa and the local the provincial government here, are they going to make some potentially tax concessions to, even, to make it even easier for Gold Corp to do business here? We haven't gotten into those types of discussions with the local government, and I don't know if that's actually necessary at this point, simply because what we're looking for is how we can work together in partnership to move forward in terms of other types of infrastructure infrastructure that may be needed in the future. So we know that the territorial government is actually looking at some funding coming from the federal government with respect to infrastructure and roads. You know, we definitely support that type of activity by the government. And if we can have them as partners to develop some of the infrastructure that's going to be used by the coffee project, by Gold Corp, that would be great for us. How are you posturing yourself for the coming two or three years? What's your outlook? Is it green light? Is it game on? In terms of the entire industry, well, I think that We're looking at this right now as a possible upswing in terms of the price of gold. We've seen some pressure coming in those areas. We believe that we're a company even though that there was a down cycle, that we're positioned extremely well in terms of that next cycle that may occur. Supply and demand is actually playing a lot, we believe, into the price of gold these days is uncertainty. But as more of those types of events uh, occur, we actually see the cycle increasing. Therefore, with the type of company that we are, with our clean balance sheet, with access to capital, with a strong technical team also that's been able to deliver on two large-scale mines in the last two years uh, in terms of building them, we think that we're actually very bullish on our our projects and very bullish on the price of gold also. And there's still a window at these price levels for more opportunities for mergers and acquisitions. Absolutely. And I think we, we always look at it in terms of how we can build a better portfolio, maximize the value within our portfolio. And with an upswing in the price of gold, this allows us to take a look at different types of 
possibilities for projects that we may want to actually bring into the staple of projects that we currently have. How has GoCorp as a company become leaner and meaner during this last bear market? Well, I think that all of us have learned during the last bear market that we have to be doing things better, more efficiently, because those cycles happen very, very quickly. And when they do, we have the responsibility to our shareholders to ensure that we're doing this in a way that is increasing the value of our projects all the time. And we're looking at ways to actually do things more efficiently. And I, I think that we're still in the process of doing that, lowering our all-in all sustaining costs, looking at our model in terms of how we work directly with the mine sites. And I think that our company is well positioned to be able to do that. You've taken a look at the Yukon and Kamenak specifically with a look at economic considering your background, correct? Yeah, that's right. Well, also in terms of political risk, and that's what we were, we were talking about before, whereby because I do the analysis of the jurisdictions where we operate and jurisdictions where we want to go, that's becoming a factor that is a lot more important in our decision-making process to really try and understand what would be the impediments of actually going to a different jurisdictions. And some of them are quite challenging. I mean, we have mines in Guatemala. We have mines in Argentina. They're quite challenging politically. All areas which you have a background in. Exactly. What is really interesting, and I was telling the Premier, and we've had this discussion before, is that they've been doing a strong effort to get to the forums, like the Prospectors Development Association of Canada Conference in Toronto, whereby every year they come and meet with me and try and attract my attention to... Why don't you come up here and take a look at what's going on in the Yukon? You're going to be interested. And, you know, three, four years of that really piqued our interest. So we started looking at projects in the area. When you have a government that is actually trying to attract companies to come and take a look, and they're doing it in a way that they want companies to come up and work here, but they want companies to work here responsibly also to really understand the terrain, to really understand the dynamics, the social, the economic, and the technical dynamics. And they knew that we had quite a bit of experience working in northern Ontario and also northern Quebec and some very good success in terms of our relationship with First Nations in those areas. So it was sort of a, a natural stepping stone for us to come out to the Yukon. Now, we know that Quebec is a, is a great jurisdiction. How would you compare the Yukon with Quebec? And if you could give any advice, I don't know if we should or not, but if you could give any advice to uh, the Yukon government, what would that be? I think that that whole relationship that exists in Quebec in between the provincial government, the First Nations in the area, is, is something that the government takes very seriously. It's something that the First Nations take very seriously in terms of telling people that you know they are open to commercial extractive operations in their province, on their traditional territories, but they want to ensure that it's done in a way that is socially and technically responsible. If you set those parameters from the start, I think it's extremely important that you have two partners that are working together to attract that industry, support it, and making sure that companies are adhering to the rules that, and the regulations that they have in that area. And you fought much harder battles in Latin America, haven't you? Yeah, the, the political battles in Latin America are much more difficult, of course, and they're much more interesting. I find them to be quite interesting sometimes, but you can also learn quite a bit about you know, the way that mining, extractive industry is done here in Canada and export a lot of that experience to some of these countries in terms of demonstrating that you know, when you do have 
regulations and standards that are, are very responsible on behalf of the government and for companies. When you have clarity in the process in terms of how foreign investment is welcome but is also protected in those countries, those are all aspects that become extremely important in terms of us making sure that these countries do understand that if they want to attract foreign investment, that this is a good model for them to put in place. Now, I live in a traditionally unfriendly jurisdiction. That's California. What can you say, hypothetically, to the powers that be in the state of California to ease their minds with responsibility because it's a mineral-rich area, the entire state? How can we turn that around and benefit the population? I think that a lot of the basic regulations that have been put in place in California right now with respect to water, with respect to mining, reclamation, I think have extended to the point where they've made that jurisdiction unattractive to mining industry. What I would say, though, is that I think the extractive industry is doing mining in a very responsible manner today. And I, I would also say that if we take a look at how the industry has moved forward in the area of responsibility, I think it's probably getting closer to where California would like to see the industry in their their own state. And maybe there's a convergent point in between where they could bring back mining to the area where it can coexist with other industries and also be able to be an economic driver in the area. If that happened, hypothetically, would Gold Corp potentially be interested in getting into California? We're always looking at projects in different places and we keep our eyes on specific projects and some of them are actually in California. We take a long-range view in terms of making sure that we're following them along and, and if there is, at one point, an area of compromise in terms of where we want to go with mining in different jurisdictions, while it's always attractive for us to know which good projects are there and how we can move forward quickly, similar to what we did here in the Yukon. Do you get involved in the education process in a local area and also with regard to a provincial area nationally? Do you you say, hey, look, basically there's ways we can get around this to make it work for you, to make you happy, to satisfy all of your concerns? Yeah, we do. We do it through different venues. We do it through the mining associations in different areas. We do it through the International Council on Metal and Mining to really try and demonstrate that there is ways of doing responsible mining around the world. And I think those are important organizations whereby we can talk about the experience of what we've done in in certain places. I mean, there are a lot of great mining companies out there that are doing extremely good work. You know, case in point is is what Kamenak was able to achieve, you know, until we purchased this project. What they've been able to achieve in the Yukon, working with the different stakeholders, is a different way of actually pushing a project forward as opposed to only concentrating on explorations. There are much more facets to it, and I think that that model can be replicated in different places and can be discussed so that other jurisdictions may think that, you know, maybe that's the way that we want to be able to do mining in our area if we feel that mining can be an important economic driver. Brent Bergeron, thank you so much for joining us today on the program. Really appreciate your time. It was my pleasure. Thank you very much. I've been chatting with Brent Bergeron, Executive Vice President for Corporate Affairs and Sustainability at Gold Corp at the Yukon Mining Conference in Dawson City, Canada. Listen to this segment again on our website, ellismartreport.com, and download the entire Ellismart Report on iTunes and TuneIn Radio. Join me for a conversation with Dr. Brant Thompson, CEO and President of Oncolytics Biotech Incorporated, trading as ONCY on the OTCQX and ONC on the TSX. 
Oncolytics Biotech is a biotechnology company focused on the development of oncolytic viruses as potential therapeutics for use in a broad range of cancers. The company is conducting clinical studies using Reolice and its proprietary formulation of the human reovirus and some of the most prevalent forms of the disease, including lung, colorectal, and pancreatic cancers. Brad, welcome back to the program. Oh, thank you, Alice. You just released some news announcing first patients treated in a phase 1b study in advanced pancreatic cancer. Now, these patients have advanced pancreatic cancer. We've discussed that Reolysin has been designed to treat advanced cases. What's significant about this particular study and what can we look forward to in the future? Well, this is the first time that we've combined Reolysin, which is our product based on a, you know, a live virus, and combining it with one of the new class of drugs that are called checkpoint inhibitors. And what checkpoint inhibitors do is basically un blind or, or open the eyes of your immune system to tumors. Tumors are very effective at camouflaging themselves from the immune system. These new drugs actually sort of take that away and it lets the immune system see a tumor again and help kill it. What Realicin does is actually enhances the activities of these new drugs, these checkpoint inhibitors. And certainly we're very excited about the prospects um, now treating patients with Realicin and them combined together for the first time. And so we treated our first few patients down in San Antonio in Texas and uh, gained because it's pancreatic cancer, it raises the ante because pancreatic cancer outcomes are so poor. And so we're all basically holding our breath waiting to see what the first results from this clinical study are, which will come quite quickly. So for all stages, as I understand, with regard to pancreatic cancer, it's pretty near fatal. So this sort of study is extremely important, isn't it? Pancreatic cancer is just something you don't want to ever say to a patient. I mean, it's just a terrible, debilitating disease that leads to death almost inevitably. And I mean, there's been some advances in putting off the disease for a while, but we're talking a while, we're talking months. And I think the entire industry is waiting for the next big leap forward. And I think using some kind of immune combination therapy of some form is going to be the case where we actually make a difference there. Instead of saying to somebody, instead of dying in six months, you're going to die in nine months, which is hugely valuable. I mean, three extra months means a lot to people. For that next milestone, it's the next birthday, it's the next anniversary. It means something to people. To Even people go, oh, what's three months? Well, three months is really important. But wouldn't it be nice to say to a patient, no, you're not going to have six months. You're going to live for three years or longer or five or the dream, you know, say to a pancreatic cancer patient, you're cured occasionally. That's really where we're headed with this area. And so the first time to our understanding that people are doing combined immune therapy in pancreatic cancer patients, I think this is going to attract a lot of attention from a lot of people and most importantly, hopefully from the patient's perspective. When might we hear something either way about this particular study? I would think that the majority of patients should be enrolled sometime this year, but we'll actually start to get data before that. And that's one of the also exciting things about doing work with immune therapies is that there's all these kind of markers and special assays that you can do and take a look at the patient that can tell you if the actual this immune effect is actually happening long before you actually find out if they live longer. So you will have a very good sense, hopefully not too distant future this year, about how it's working. And again, that's, that's exciting. I mean, I'm used to waiting years, sometimes five, six, seven years to see if a therapy is working. And to say that we started in the calendar year and actually have information that same calendar year is pretty, pretty exciting. So from an investment point of view, let's talk dollars and cents for a moment. Of course, there's enormous value for a pancreatic cancer patient to live another three months or six months or a year or perhaps another five or 10 years and beyond. That would be a game changer. What kind of effect would this have potentially on your company financially if there's success 
in this area. Can we talk about that? The real value adders in biotechnology, especially in oncology, is adding lifespan to patients. I mean, if we can demonstrate that there's a lifespan benefit to patients using real life, and that is one of the major sort of value drivers in biotechnology companies that look at oncology. And that event in itself is usually the signature event in a big change in valuation in companies. And so it's very important for us to be able to demonstrate that to our patients and to our shareholders. At this time, with everything that you have going on with regard to your company, you are doing research on several manifestations of cancer. Why do you believe that this particular company, along with others in the sector that are doing great research and, and having success are, are so potentially undervalued? Well, it's a general phenomenon in biotechnology that you seem to have a disconnect with what value is. Some companies, and good for them, that seem to have outrageous valuations on very little information. But there's a reason for that. I think it's because the message and the story is focused and it's relatively simple. And because it's focused like that, then people give them credit for that and good for them good for those companies and good for the prospects for the going forward. When you look at the commonality of companies that seem to be, quote, undervalued, there does tend to be, it's usually a more complicated discussion and it's a more complicated picture. Data might be a little more textured or whatever you want to call it. And that makes it difficult for people to put their finger on what the real value is underneath. And I think those companies, and I think that includes us, tend to be valued at less. And so it's really our challenge and our job to try to focus people on the kind of core elements of what we're doing and the expectation is, is that when you get to that point, then you will see a valuation correction just by communicating that in an appropriate way. Well, it's not good enough, and I've always said this to people I know that are involved in, in running public companies, it's not good enough to be doing your job with the business. Of course, that's fantastic. You need a legitimate business to be a public company and, and to go out and ask for money. But it's important to draw attention to the company and let everybody know what you're doing. If you've got a potential solution for cancer, in fact, us solution for cancer. It doesn't do any good if nobody knows about it with regard to investing in the company. You're on the road a lot, making sure that people learn about your company. The whole communicating with your shareholder base and with potential new shareholders is the primary job of public company CEOs. And it's no different in biotechnology than it is in other industries. I think where the difference in biotechnology is, is that our message virtually changes every week. As you can get more information and whatever, you have to incorporate that in. It's critical that you go out and you communicate face-to-face with your investing group or whatever audience or whatever you want to call it. And that's what we do. And that's what I do. It's easy in a lot of ways because what we do is so exciting. And it's difficult in a way because it does require a lot of time and energy to do that. But it's an absolutely essential core role of biotech publicly traded CEO. Are you getting any kind of feedback from some of the people that you've been treating over the years? You've over 1,100 to date? You know, it's interesting out of every study, we're not supposed to know who the patients are in studies as a company. I mean, that's sort of a basic tenet of the business. But usually at some point when studies are done, almost every one of our studies, a patient will contact us. A patient will go, hey, I was on your X study. Hey, I'm still here. And so you, you get face-to-face contact with the patients for the first time. And usually after when the study is after it's completed. It's interesting, almost on every study that we have, we have at least one, sometimes a number of very long-term survivors. And this goes back to our very original study. It is an absolute delight when I, sometimes my yearly phone calls or yearly visits, they usually show up out of the blue in my office. And we sit down and I'm looking at this person that was supposed to be dead, you know, five or 10 years ago, and they're fine. That is the best, best 
present, the best day of my life every year. And I get that over and over again. And it's it's absolutely wonderful to have that kind of contact. The site number and a patient number, so I'll be like 13-107B or something like that. And then you get this personalized face-to-face interaction with somebody who's apparently derived benefit from your product. It's really an amazing experience. I imagine it provides a, a lot of motivation for you when you're out on the road and also for your, your management team. Everybody knows that they're affecting lives of people that have been afflicted as well as their extended families and friends. You're actually uh, bringing joy to people that you most likely have no idea who they are. It's a very integral part of why people work in companies like ours to have that kind of feedback and kind of support. Honestly, I mean, we're a, a big industry looking at cancer research and from a company perspective because I can't speak of it anywhere else. Every company I know, there's a strong element of that's why people are there. We're here to get a product out. Yes, we're here to get a return to our shareholders. Yes, we're all those things with the business side. Deep underneath that is the, wow, we're helping people out. And, you know, when my staff and my colleagues get access to that kind of information, you can just see what it does to them. The spring is back in their step and the joy is in their life. That is, that is what makes their day. It's a very strong undercurrent in our industry, both the biotech companies and the big pharma companies. I have to say my big pharma colleagues are just like us. We get a kick out of helping people. It's coincidental in a nice way, but it's also good for our businesses. Well, Brad, it's always a pleasure to speak with you. I look forward to another conversation in the very near future. Thanks so much for joining us again today on the program. Thank you very much, Alice. I've been speaking with Dr. Brad Thompson, CEO and President of Oncolytics Biotech Incorporated, trading as ONCY on the OTCQX. Listen to the segment again on our website or download the entire Ellis Martin Report on iTunes. You've just heard opinion, commentary, and dissertation involving publicly trading companies seeking your potential investment. They paid us for the privilege. Invest at your own risk and only after doing extensive research. Find our sponsors and listen to segments of this program again on our website, ellismartinreport.com. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. 